You're listening to The Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org lenses. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Jonathan Bass. He's a member here at Shades. He's written on this topic. He teaches in the history department at Samford uh, on this topic. He just informed us the next year will be 20 years at Samford. So that's a big deal, and we're excited to celebrate that. Uh, But we're continuing the conversation on racial reconciliation, specifically focused on the historical component of that, uh, because whether we remember it or not, that we live in Birmingham, Alabama, that has a certain history related to this topic, and uh, it's in our backyard and important to us. So that'll be good, and we're excited to hear that. Uh, Before we begin, let us stand, read scripture together, and then I will pray. Uh, there's a word, it's Scythian, so that before we read it out loud and then I'll giggle because we don't know how to say it, Scythian, Scythian. All right, great. Let's read together from Colossians chapter 3. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your Holy Spirit here tonight uh, to open our hearts and our minds on this important topic. Let us learn to be better neighbors um, and Christians that look more like Jesus Christ. We will hear uh, gladly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dr. Bass. Good evening. Used to teaching 8 a.m. classes, so this is a, a real stretch for me. Um, we're going to talk uh, about racial reconciliation in a broader historical context. I'm going to start broad, and I know some of y'all want to hear some information um, about Birmingham uh, in the civil rights movement, and that's uh, that's where we're heading. But uh, I wanted to start uh, tonight by beginning with what divides us right now. Because this is not a new issue of the race problem in America. A dividing line still runs through the heart of America. Can't hear me? See, I'm used to teaching 20 people. Uh, not, not vast masses of them. But, uh, a dividing line still runs through the heart of America on the issue of race. At the turn of the 20th century, W.E.B. Du Bois described this as a vast veil between the races that left blacks and whites living together in the same nation, yet coexisting as strangers in their own community. This divide has prominent geographic significance in Birmingham. Red Mountain separates the predominantly black city in the valley and almost the exclusively white suburbs over the mountain. The phrase over the mountain is not just a geographical expression. It's also an attitude. An attitude that is distorted by skin, skin color, race, class, and culture. It's a viewpoint that at times serves as a barrier to meaningful racial reconciliation. One issue that interferes with meaningful interracial dialogue between blacks and whites is a lack of understanding of the civil rights movement, the movement of the 1950s and 60s. Like all history in the post-World War II period, the civil rights movement has been politicized and mischaracterized. More importantly, 
the central focus of the movement has been either marginalized, ignored, or dismissed. Participants often recalled the movement years as a heady, life-transforming era touched with divine significance. Historical evidence suggests that it is misleading to view the civil rights movement as a political event that at best had religious overtones. Most often, the movement is seen as an extension of the liberal political orthodoxy and an oversimplified cultural artifact of the 1960s. It's the Abraham Martin and John interpretation of the civil rights movement. Somebody's old enough, do they know this song? Okay. And you're going to sing it, right? For us? No. This was written in the 1960s. In several verses. Has anybody here seen my old friend? God, I'm not going to sing. Has anybody here seen my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seems the good die young. But I just looked around and he's gone. Okay, and the, this repeats itself. Has anybody seen my old friend Martin? Has anybody seen my old friend John? Has anybody seen my old friend Bobby? Any of y'all, uh, some of y'all are closer to this than I am, the great cultural icon of Sesame Street. Um, one of these things is not like the other. Anybody remember this? One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing it is is not like the others by the time I finish this song? What doesn't belong? In that song. Abraham Lincoln, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. I mean, they do share one thing in common, but not another. Three of the four are politicians. The fourth is a minister of the gospel. It doesn't belong. All of this is part of the de-emphasis de of the role of evangelical Christianity in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King was not a political leader. The movement was not a political movement. The words of many of the participants suggest that it was for them primarily a religious event, a religious event whose social and political aspects were in their minds secondary at best, perhaps incidental. To take the testimony of intense religious transformation is to consider the civil rights movement as part of a historical tradition of religious revivals, such as the First and Second Great Awakenings, a religious revival, an awakening, and not an ideological political movement. So King doesn't belong with Lincoln and Kennedy, or the Kennedys. But he does belong with the great revivalists, like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Grandison Finney, both of whom spurred significant spiritual and cultural changes as leaders in the First and Second Great Awakening, respectively. William McLaughlin, a pioneer writer on the study of religion, writes that awakenings have been the shaping power of American culture since its inception. Absolutely true. The difference between the historic great awakenings and ordinary revivals is that wake awakenings alter the worldview of a whole people or culture. If McLaughlin is right, then perhaps what historians frequently call the Second Reconstruction or the Civil Rights Movement should just as rightly be called the Third Great Awakening. But to understand this as an awakening, you have to understand the context of the time period. 
there was a spiritual awakening in the United States in the years following World War II. There were revivals throughout the 1950s where ministers like Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, Bishop Fulton Sheen, and many others rose to prominence and reached millions of Americans. Graham, Roberts, and Sheen are unique because all three of these men used mass meetings and the new medium of television to evangelize others. Martin Luther King fits into this category as well. He held mass meetings, both to evangelize and, as King said, to shine the light of truth on the injustices of segregation. He wanted to show, both in mass meetings and on television, that Christians shared a common faith and a common destiny. This was something that was lost on so many white Southern Christians at the time, but embraced by black Christians throughout the region. As Birmingham's own Fred Shuttlesworth said in 1958 in a sermon, this, and he's talking about the civil rights movement, this is a religious crusade, a fight between light and darkness, right and wrong, good and evil, fair play and tyranny. We are assured victory because we are using the weapons of spiritual warfare. Revivals, like the civil rights movement in the South, focused on evangelism, promises of deliverance, faith-stretching, miracles, and a conversion experience. The conversion experience played a key role in consummating religious revivals. Recollections of many of extraordinary religious experiences are widespread. Ask some of the movement veterans to tell you, short, tell you stories all right, that, uh, that there was a great spiritual awakening in the 1950s and 1960s for them. It's hard to imagine, and I tell my students this when I'm teaching civil rights, masses of people, African Americans, lining up for years of terrible risk against southern lawmen, fire hoses, police dogs, without a Christ-centered faith to sustain them. Is someone really going to stand in front of the fire hoses motivated by a political ideology? Often forgotten, if you look closely at the civil rights movement, both at a local and national level, are the conversion experiences that occur during this spiritual awakening. All right, we think of it just going, the movement just going on in the streets. But many of the ministers that are involved in this and the lay people are out evangelizing. Bringing is an opportunity that they see with all of the political excitement that's going on from the media that they can go in and they can go into the pool halls and they can go into the bars and they can go into other areas that normally they wouldn't go into because of the excitement and all of the different people that are around and evangelize and call people out, all right? Much different than hitting the sawdust trail, okay, at a, at a revival in the Second Great Awakening, but the concept is still there, calling these people out, all right, to do what? To embrace a political ideology? No, calling these people out so they can follow Christ. It's key. It's, it's absolutely central. And the amazing thing to watch as a Christian who happens to be a historian is the lengths that other historians will go to to de-emphasize the role of faith and Christianity in the civil rights movement to the point that it's literally written out of the history of the movement. It's already been written out the history of the United States. All right? But how you can even talk about the civil rights movement without talking about the centrality of Christ and the hope of reconciliation that comes through both Christ and the unity of race 
of all being under Christ that that brings. But that's not something secular historians are really interested in talking about. For black Christians, involvement in the movement was a natural extension of their faith in Christ Jesus. Understanding their experiences only opens up new avenues for us to engage in meaningful dialogue and reconciliation. For Martin Luther King, beyond all of his significant theological and intellectual training, he had a very simple biblical view To live in sin was to live in separation from God. He often quoted Isaiah 59. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. King was also not just focused on the vertical. It was a very logical extension for him on the horizontal that living in racial separation was also a sin. It was people, Christians, Christian brothers and sisters were living in sin by being racially separated. In Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility John 17:20 my prayer is not for them alone i pray also for those who will believe in me from their message verse 21 that all of them may be one Father, just as you and, I, you and me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that, that you have sent me. One of the greatest tragedies of the civil rights years was a genuine lack of meaningful communication between white Christians and black Christians. Martin Luther King said, people fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other Because they don't know each other. And they don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. And that's a tragedy. King was hopeful of a new day, a new day in Birmingham. And he looked to that future, a future that he envisioned with racial reconciliation of people moving beyond the cultural ties that bound them to a system and a society, the organization that King, uh, that came out of the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and 1966, the organization that King was the president of was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Still around. All right. Their motto is very telling. Okay. to redeem the soul of America. Right. And that's not just a secular statement, as many has interpreted it. In April of 1963, King decided to come to Birmingham and begin a series of protests that most of us are familiar with. Why did he do this? He's going to provide us with the most, from his time in Birmingham, he's going to provide us with the most important written document of the time period, and that is his letter from Birmingham jail. Who else do we know that likes to write letters from jail? Paul, okay? All right, the parallels are obvious, all right, of of what, and who did Paul write to? The church, okay? And King is going to be writing to the church as well. So let's, let's, so does that make sense in terms of giving you all sort of the context of the civil rights movement, perhaps in a way that 
you haven't thought about it before as an awakening and as a religious revival? Okay. Any questions about this? I know Jacob, we said he got questions at the end, but we're going to transition a little bit into some more specifics on Birmingham. Um, okay. Either I'm doing my job or I'm not. But, uh, you, you can nod every once in a while and make me feel okay. All right. Birmingham, at one time, was called the City of Churches. I am told, although I have found no historical evidence to prove this, that there were more churches in Birmingham per capita than any other city in the United States. Now, I would believe that about barbecue, but I wouldn't necessarily believe that about, about, uh, about churches. Okay, But in the early years, probably in Birmingham's first 50 years of, uh, of existence, city leaders promoted Birmingham as a city of churches. All right, And when we think about the civil rights movement, we think about one church in particular, right? And it's this church. Which church is this? 16th Street Baptist Church, okay? Birmingham symbol of the civil rights movement. But when Martin Luther King came, okay, uh, you know, we, we think of all these events that may have occurred in the 16th Street Baptist Church. All right, these mass meetings, these revivalistic meetings, okay, are all in churches, black churches, all over the Birmingham area. Every Monday night, okay, there is a mass meeting at some church in Birmingham. At the height of the movement, there's a meeting every night at some church in Birmingham. All right, from Inslee up to North Birmingham to downtown to the churches around, uh, remember... Um, some of you may remember that the whole area where UAB now was a very large African-American community. And uh, if you, uh, any UAB students or anybody here went to UAB, where Bartow Arena is now sitting, there were, on that block, there were three churches at each of the corners. Everything's, of course, gone uh, now. Um, and so mass meetings occurred in these churches all over town. On April 12th, 1963, which just happened to be Good Friday, this church was the center of national attention. Martin Luther King had decided he was going to march. He was going to violate a court injunction, and he was going to march and get arrested. So everybody wanted to see. They packed this little church out. It's still there. Because I took the picture. Uh, and so this isn't exactly a historic picture. Um, it's, it's just down the street from 16th Street Baptist Church on 6th, Avenue no, on 6th Avenue North. I think it's called Deliverance Temple now. But in 1963, it was 6th Avenue Zion Hill Baptist. A very small African-American congregation. I don't think the fire marshal came by that day. King was supposed to speak at noon. At 2 o'clock, he still hadn't arrived, but that did not dampen the enthusiasm of the crowd. They continued to sing. Every pew was filled. Every aisle was lined with people. people they, all the windows were open. People were looking in doors, looking in windows, waiting for Dr. King to come. Why did he decide to march on that day? Well... The protests in Birmingham had began almost 10 days beforehand. Is this an image we usually associate with protests in Birmingham? What's going on? Got a lunch counter sit in. One person, not a whole lot of activity, not a whole lot of publicity, all right? He, he's not getting what he needs, which is... Uh, to shine the light of truth on the injustices of racial segregation in Birmingham, using Birmingham as a microcosm for the rest of the South. All right, And so it's real interesting to look at the civil rights movement in Birmingham in, the, in, 
in, the, in early April, into mid-April 1963, because they're trying all of these different things to get some attention, okay, to get this movement going, all right, so they can show the rest of the country that they're here to redeem the soul of America. So they try sit-ins, obviously, doesn't get a whole lot of publicity. They try voting rights marches. Those don't work. And then ultimately, King decided that he was going to march himself, lead a march himself. There had been a court injunction that had prohibited any marches in Birmingham. He decided he was going to violate it. Uh, They purposely did this on Good Friday. What happens on Good Friday? Uh, biblically, what happens on Good Friday? <laughs> Christ is crucified. How does he get there? He marches. Okay. Again, the symbolism is uh, is obvious. King would be very, very uncomfortable to comparing himself to a messianic figure. Okay, but uh, but still, the symbolism uh, is there. All right. The movement is going bankrupt. And what, they're, what they need is this publicity. So King finally shows up at 6th Avenue Zion Hill Baptist Church about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Preaches a short sermon. I don't know how short it was. And then at some point uh, they are essentially commissioned as, uh, as, as uh, ministers and missionaries to go out, violate this court injunction, and um, and there they are, uh, right as they're walking out the doors onto the sidewalk of 6th Avenue. Uh, this is on the same side as the 16th Street Baptist Church, down from the Civil Rights Institute. And, uh, and they're heading up towards 16th Street Baptist Church. Y'all recognize Dr. King on the right? All right. And this is, these are the three important leaders in the Birmingham movement. All right, and uh, this is a great photograph because it really captures the personalities of each of these individuals. Dr. King looks worried. Ralph Abernathy, who's in the middle, which is King's closest friend, looks very jovial. And then there's Fred, Birmingham's Fred Shuttlesworth, who looks absolutely defiant. And that just fits the personalities of all three of them. So this is on into the afternoon that Good Friday. And they begin making their way. Uh, Shuttlesworth uh, was chosen to stay out of jail, so he slips out, but he later gets arrested anyways. And uh, and you see a lot, it's real interesting, a lot of the African, because remember, that's much more of a residential community than it is now. And uh, a lot of the Afro- African Americans have gotten uh, some of them have gotten in their Easter Sunday outfits and come down. A lot of them will remove hats. Um, a lot of people are kneeling along uh, along the route as they're going. And here you see a broader view of it. Okay, there are only 50 official commissioned, all right, uh, protesters that are going out and marching. Everyone else, all right, are uh, onlookers. Um, all of the whites are uh, the air, whole area was barricaded off. Whites were not let in. Uh, Bull Connor said he wanted to, to. He set up the barricaders to keep the troublemakers from messing with the troublemakers. And uh, so every all the whites you see are either newspaper reporters or their plain clothes uh, law enforcement officials. Okay, and you start seeing that these uh, it's casting. Uh, long shadows as we're moving into the afternoon. Um, this is only about a two and a half block march. It, prob- it probably took less than ten minutes, uh, and this is prob- this is really close to across the street from the Hugo Black Courthouse now on Fifth Avenue North, where they are arrested. All of the protesters, as soon as they're confronted. Uh, they're confronted by uh, the police officer behind them who actually was driving a three-wheel motorcycle. Um, 
I bet his friends were envious, and uh, pulled up in front of them. They immediately go to their knees and begin praying. And uh, when the officer gets impatient with the prayers, he sort of picks them up, hurls them towards the paddy wagon. And uh, here you see a Birmingham police officer who has got Dr. King by the belt loop, and they're about to put him in the paddy wagon and take him over to the Birmingham jail, uh, which is uh, uh, on the south side. Bull Connor ref uh, referred to it as the south side Hilton. Um, here you see um, the docket book, and this is uh, when King and Abernathy and the rest of the protesters were signed into the jail, okay, and uh, listing they're living in Atlanta. Uh, the, uh, Robert Fulton is interesting. He is the only uh, official uh, participator in the march that was white. He was a professor at, uh, at Miles College. And uh, this is kind of cool. This was recently discovered, and this is uh, uh, Dr. King's mugshot uh, from, uh, from when, he was, uh, when he was first arrested. He's taken, he's placed into this jail cell, the doors at the Civil Rights Institute now. Uh, he's placed in solitary confinement. And while he's there, uh, he uh, receives word uh, or reads it in the newspapers that eight white ministers in Birmingham had written a uh, public letter and said, uh, that these marches are unwise and untimely. They commend the police officers on their um, calm manner, nonviolent manner in handling the protesters. And uh, this is something he had thought about doing before, and that is to answer the criticism, okay, from across the country. See, Birmingham was in the process of changing. Voted out of office was the old city commissioner led by uh, the infamous Bull Connor. And in its place was a mayor city council form of government. Uh, they had not been even given the opportunity to start dismantling segregation before, which some of them were committed to, before the marches start in April of 1963. So the timing of these marches were very suspect. Okay, and King is being criticized for these marches uh, for these first two weeks. Remember what y'all think of as the Birmingham March of, of uh, police dogs and fire hoses does not occur until May. This is uh, April 12th, all right? There have been no dogs. There have been no fire hoses. And so the, uh, President Kennedy, Billy Graham, um, all of these officials from throughout the United States are telling King, come on, call these marches off. Uh, don't uh, give, the, give the Birmingham, new Birmingham government an uh, opportunity to, to, uh, to, to maybe dismantle segregation. So they, it's into that context. These are, uh, these are probably the leading white ministers in Birmingham in 1963. Uh, they're not all in this picture at the White House. But uh, Charles Carpenter, who was Episcopal bishop, Joseph Durek, who was a Catholic bishop, Milton Grafman, who was the rabbi at Temple Emmanuel, Paul Hardin and Nolan Harmon, both Methodist bishops. Paul Hardin had previously been pastor of First Methodist Birmingham. George Murray was Bishop Carpenter's assistant in the Episcopal Church. And then... Uh, Two most interesting guys uh, out of this group is Ed Ramage, who was the pastor of First Presbyterian, and Earl Stallings, who was the pastor at First Baptist Church. Okay, so they get together just about the time King's going to jail, and they, um, they write this open letter that they want published in the newspapers. It calls on Kings to call off the demonstrations. They're unwise. They're untimely. All right. And King begins writing a response. Uh, and he begins scribbling it 
on margins of newspapers. And it's a cool story because he starts smuggling. It's a literary jigsaw puzzle. He starts smuggling pieces of it out during his eight days in jail to uh, his lawyer, his uh, his lawyers smuggle it out, take it back to movement headquarters, and then they uh, they start typing it at movement headquarters. These are the two individuals that are responsible for the letter from Birmingham Jail. King's top assistant, uh, Reverend Wyatt T. Walker, there on the left on the telephone, and uh, his secretary, Willie Pearl Mackey is the person that typed the letter from Birmingham jail. And when it's done, it looks like a personal correspondence. This is what, I don't expect y'all to read it. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it has uh, the, the date on it, and um, it has all the names of eight white ministers, uh, and it begins with my dear fellow clergyman. So as he's writing this thing, and um, th- there's no better piece for for uh, for y'all to read that captures what Dr. King believed, what he hoped to accomplish in Birmingham. All right, and if you haven't read it, it's available wi- widely online. Uh, I encourage y'all to look at it. And uh, one of the things I wanted to spend a couple of minutes doing was just to, to sort of show you the structure of the letter um, and the overall theme when you start, if you haven't read it or if you need to reread it, the overall theme is justification. Okay? And he's addressing some of the white minister's points. All right? They called him an outsider. Uh, justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. He's in, he says he is in Birmingham because he has accepted uh, the Macedonian call to aid, to aid the sister city. He's here, I'm here because injustice is, in, is here. So he justifies his presence. He justifies his tactics. All right? Here's why we, need, we are nonviolent. Here's why we're marching in the street. He addresses the timing. This is why we, and, and, and just and this really powerful, um, uh, long, long sentence that he weaves together what it's like to be an African American living under segregation and, uh, and justifies the timing. And, uh, and if you uh, pick up a copy of, of Dr. King's book, on the Birmingham Movement, which was, from, which was published in 1964, the name of the book is Why We Can't Wait. All right, And that was the issue with the timing. We cannot wait any longer for justice. He justifies why he, bro- he broke the law and marched to begin with, making the stink- distinction between just and unjust laws. The white ministers had called his tactics extreme. King responded to that and wrote, wasn't Jesus an extremist for love? And goes through, it has all of these remarkable classical and biblical and political references throughout. Secondarily, he gets at the white church. He rebukes white moderates, people that are lukewarm, Okay, and he is—he's—he's he's talking about the movement. He's also talking about people of lukewarm faith and his overall disillusionment with the white church. Okay, uh, he's not just talking about the white church in Birmingham. He's talking about the white church, white Christians throughout the country, that he had a general expectation that they, as as uh, as his Christian brothers and sisters, that they would come. To, to their aid, that they would see their cause as a just cause. They would recognize that what they were doing was Christ-centered, was evangelistic, all right, was very American, not communist, but something very American that fit into the context of American religious history, into spiritual revivals, into great awakenings, into, uh, and, and at a time 
where culture could be transformed by the church. And he, it's, a, it's an excoriating passage where he just absolutely blasts the church for its inactivity. Okay. I'm going to try to advance that one for me. There we go. Okay. And this is what it looks like at the end. Uh, it's uh, 21 typed pages. And uh, you can see down in the bottom left-hand corner, uh, as Willie Mackey's, uh, she typed it for Martin, for Martin Luther King. I think one of our best avenues in terms of, uh, of racial healing and racial reconciliation is to understand what happened in the previous generation, to understand the struggle for civil rights, and to understand it in the context of our own faith. That these are Christians, right? and you know, King also had some significant criticism for the African-American church as well, all right? Especially a lot of the pastors in Birmingham that didn't support uh, his movement, okay? Uh, I know it's a shock to some people that there's actually diversity of opinion in the black community, but that, uh, but there was. Uh, King was a divisive figure, okay, uh, for a lot of black and white Christians, um, that, uh, as he said, practice only an otherworldly faith uh, with this. All right. So King will be released from jail on eight, eight days later on April 20th. All right. And the movement continues to, to fade. But one of King's assistants had a great idea, or perhaps a tragic idea, and that was let's recruit school children. So after May the 1st, they begin going to Parker High School, Ullman High School, uh, the two big black high schools, uh, and middle schools and elementary schools, and begin recruiting young African Americans to come participate in the march. All right. Uh, they were all brought into churches. Uh, they were all uh, uh, trained as Christian warriors. Uh, they had the gospel shared with them. There were calls to faith. There was instruction on being non-violent. All right. Turn the other cheek. And they wildly, enthusiastically embraced uh, this notion, okay, and this awakening. And so what we most associate with the Birmingham movement occurs beginning on May the 3rd, when Bull Connor, who's still in charge of the police department, orders police dogs and fire hoses out in the streets right, to stop these protesters. King called 1963 the year of Birmingham. And in a lot of ways, Birmingham has become shorthand for racism. In a lot of ways, Birmingham has become a scapegoat for a national issue not just something that was a local issue in Birmingham. Fifty years later, we're still struggling with some of, the, some of the same issues. But the vision that Dr. King had was that Christian brothers and sisters would be black and white, would be able to sit down with each other all right, and build relationships with each other as individuals. And he helped pave the way for that. Uh, within the year, segregation ordinances were all uh, taken off the books in Birmingham. Um, blacks and whites uh, did begin communicating uh, with each other. Restaurants were no longer segregated. Actually, it's a misnomer that, that um, Birmingham's restaurants were segregated. Um, they actually, according to the ordinance they could actually be integrated as long as there was at least a six-foot-high partition between the races, which uh, none of the restaurants would uh, invest in the money to do that. So all of those ordinances are gone. And 
you know, most people think that the story of Birmingham civil rights movement ends in 1963, but really that's just the beginning. All right, the hard work all right, of, of, of dismantling the legacy of segregation, the segregation ordinances, and dealing with the aftermath of the years of Jim Crow is still falling now on multiple generations' shoulders. Well, I'm going to conclude with that. Uh, I want to see if anybody had any questions. Jacob, got time for some questions? Or? First, let's give thanks to Dr. Bass for that uh, presentation. Uh, I'm certain that we have some questions. Any questions? What do you think, let's just say Martin Luther King was still alive, what do you think his response would be to race on race crime? Like, what, what do you think, if he were still alive, what do you think his response would be to race on race crime, like, in the city? Well, I, you know, I'm a historian, not a prognosticator, um, and, it, and it does, it, it troubles me because uh, you see King used in such a political way now by both uh, the left on the political spectrum and the right um, uh, to justify uh, to, to justify certain things um, he, he in the in the uh, years before his his death in 1968 um, he was absolutely horrified by all of he, all of the violence that was occurring in the inner cities in the late 1960s and so um, he was very committed to nonviolence, and uh, and felt that was the Christian response to in, uh, injustice. Great. What were what was the response of the white ministers to King's letter? Yeah, none of the eight white ministers ever received a copy of the letter from Birmingham jail. Uh, it was a. It was not a public. It was not a private correspondence. It was a public open letter. He wasn't there. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, these eight white ministers were not. Was not his audience. It was. It was the rest of the country. Uh, it was written to white America, uh, and he just. He could have addressed this to John Kennedy or any number of his critics there in April 1963. But he chose the white ministers on purpose. Paul writes to the church, and uh, and that's what troubled him the most was just the lack of communication between black and white Christians. Uh, Didn't you ask me enough questions in class? When uh, yeah, you I probably did. Uh, <laughs> Was there any response from the white community when the letter was published? Like, was it, did they just kind of yeah. entrench themselves or? Yeah, not, not, a, not a whole lot. Um, it, uh, it, it's widely circulated. The, the white ministers don't find about about it until they start reading it. Um, and what's really interesting is that, um, you know, what you, what you learn from history is history is never simple. And it's a whole lot more complex. And here you have these eight white ministers that signed a statement together, okay, but they had wide uh, views on segregation. Some of them were much more in, uh, in support of the status quo. The older ministers were. The younger ministers were much more supportive of integration. And the two ministers that I point out to you, Ramage and Stallings, who were pastors at local churches, are the ones that suffered the most. They were in an absolute no-win situation. They're getting hate letters from um, uh, liberals in New York for being uh, no better than uh, anti-Christian Nazis. All right? And they're also getting pressure from whites in their own congregation that are very uncomfortable that they're even talking to other blacks in uh, in the community. Um, within 18 months, uh, there is only uh, two of the ministers are still left in the pulpit. 
um, uh, they, um, they, they, they all leave town, and, and tragically, Stallings was, was run out of a First Baptist church, and that started, that's the beginning of their significant problems, which will ultimately lead to that church splitting several different times, and un- unfortunately, at least twice over the issue of whether um, black people should attend or join the church. I've got probably two different questions, and you can pick either of them to answer. Okay. Um, The first one is, could you, and I realize this might be outside your area of expertise, uh, Judge Reeves from the Fifth Circuit was called out by his own pastor in church uh, regarding some of his civil rights rulings, if you want to address that as one option. And number two, do you have any thoughts or reflections about Dr. King's participation in the Memphis, uh, the sanitation worker strike, mm-hmm. and especially with regard to how he addressed it in the Minor Prophets and James 5. So pick either or both. Well, yeah, and I'm familiar with what you're talking about are federal judges um, that uh, they're on the old Fifth Circuit. Um, and um, that, that's sort of a re- really remarkable. I mean, it's a story. These are stories that have been told, um, and that, that, that there are several of uh, these justices, um, uh, judges, Frank uh, Frank Johnson, uh, and others on the um, uh, federal judiciary, who re- who play an absolutely remarkable role in dismantling every last vestige of of segregation uh, from the law books. And, uh, you know, uh, Wallace, uh, George, Governor George Wallace went to college with Frank Johnson. Uh, Johnson was from uh, Winston County, and he was, a, a Repu- you know, he was a Republican. He was appointed to the bench by Eisenhower. And, um, you know, and he was one of the most hated men in Alabama uh, for, uh, for a lot of his, lot of his rulings. So, um, you know, we emphasize the spiritual side, but, you know, there is this whole pragmatic side to the civil rights movement, uh, their use of the media, but uh, certainly the role that the federal judiciary played below the Supreme Court level is significant for ending segregation. I have a question, and then Tracy has a question, and then Logan has a question. We've got a lot of great questions. All right, I have a theory, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. We'll pose it that way. Uh, my personal theory is that the, the church has a chance to stand out when the culture around it is distinctly non-Christian. It feels like that's when we talk about the civil rights movement as a potentially third great awakening, that that could considerably, consider to be true. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Would you say that the situation, the political, social climate we're in now could also be true? Or at least the question is kind of what's, sim- what's similar now that was happening back then, or my way off base. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, uh, part politics are probably even more partisan uh, than uh, than they were back then. I think people are, more, um, in a lot of ways, more polarized um, about this. And and uh, I had to uh, talk uh, last semester. I was actually teaching civil rights. And, uh, and I had to talk a few students off the ledge after uh, Trump was elected. And, uh, and just a, um, a reminder to them that um, our identity comes from Christ, not from any political leader uh, that we may or may not like. And, um, and I, th- I, yeah, I, I think there are some areas where we've made great strides, and there are some areas, especially in institutional racism, that... Uh, still need to be addressed. But that's getting kind of sociological and that's outside my area. Building off of Jacob's question, um, we've had history brought up a lot, particularly in recent weeks, both in the civil rights movement with MLK Day and just other movements in history referenced as into the current times that we're in. What parts of the civil rights movement do you think should we, we should be keeping top of mind or paying attention to um, in today's racial 
and I hate to use the word political climate because you've done a beautiful job of not making this about politics, but what should we be keeping top of mind as we reflect on the civil rights movement in the context of today's um, racial, in seeking racial reconciliation? Well, I, I think it's uh, what King talks about uh, in uh, the letter from Birmingham jail, that the, that the church should be uh, the headlights for culture and not the tail lights, and too all too often I think we are uh, we are the tail lights, and and it, this is the issue that's so difficult to deal with. Uh, in a lot of ways, we are still a country of strangers, um, and uh, uh, you know Af African Americans and whites still uh, self-segregate uh, at times, and um, and I, I think. Uh, a reminder that uh, the church should be at the forefront that um, the, the church shouldn't be reflecting culture. The church should be changing culture. And, uh, and I think that's all too often where we have not led uh, the way we should have. And just really, and, and it's difficult. I mean, it's really difficult. I mean, when you're talking about uh, white Christians not doubting in any way the faith of, of these people uh, at all. It is so difficult to transcend the culture of the time that you're living in. You just, I mean, and, and that's where those people were. And they could not, so many, some could, but uh, they could not envision a future without segregation. But, okay, when you think about it, I mean, that's a radical change. Suddenly you've gone from about 90 years of racial separation. All the laws are now off the books and it, society is integrated. Where, was the all, where were the mass riots, murders, and protests that occurred after that? Um, a lot, the white church was just as passive in accepting segregation as it was passive in, this, in accepting integration. What do you see as the main um, similarities and the main differences between the civil rights movement and the current Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, well, and... Uh, I think, again, I think it's somewhat of a misnomer. I always tell my students on the first day of class, uh, this class shouldn't be called the history of the civil rights movement. It should be called history of the civil rights movements. And um, because there are so many different aspects of it. You know, we just touched on Dr. King's aspect in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, I, you know, again, I don't like to prognosticate, but history would tell us that Dr. King would be extremely uncomfortable with any type of violence. Um, I mean, if if the if the uh, if the students um, or anyone engaged in uh, they threw a rock, they did anything and was was disrespectful to someone else. Even law enforcement officials, when when they're brutalizing them, they would get kicked out of the movement. All right, so I, th I think he would be very uncomfortable with, uh, with not necessarily the concept of Black Lives Matter, but maybe uh, I think he would be horrified with the, with the violence that may have, uh, have occurred. Um, well, are you equating the Black Lives Matter movement with the violence that's happening because it wasn't started that way? And the people who associate themselves with it I don't think that they're actually a part of that. So is yeah. that what you're doing? Yeah, and, and, and that's always something to be mindful of. And, and I d didn't make the point with when I was showing you, there were only 50 protesters um, uh, that day. Uh, the newspaper re reported uh, uh, over the weekend that there were 1,100 black protesters in the streets in Birmingham. We know there were only 50, uh, but the press just counted black faces uh, with this and associated them with the movement. And this is a constant struggle of, 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 uh, of King and the folks in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, denouncing violence and, uh, and uh, denouncing people 
that might come out to the same type thing, might come out to watch them but commit acts of violence. And you see time and time again that, that, that uh, uh, they reject that. These people are not part of our movement, that type of thing. Jonathan, thank you so much you. for leading us. This is fascinating. We're really, really thankful. At this time, we're going to get into small groups, groups of five to... If you have, could you come see Jonathan afterwards so that we can do our small groups for your question? I apologize. We've run out of time. We're going to do uh, small groups of five to eight. Circle up, and then we have these questions that we're going to, uh, going to discuss, and I'll close this in about ten minutes with a prayer. Uh, so small groups now. Thank you. All right, friends. Most likely, conversations like this could be long, and we could keep going, but we are going to pause uh, right now and close in prayer. I do hope you continue with these questions and these conversations in the moments, days, months, and years uh, continuing. Uh, we're going to read a closing prayer together. So if you will uh, put your attention to the screen, and then let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us the grace, wisdom, and boldness to make our church look more like heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. Look forward to seeing you next week with Danny Wood and Dr. Michael Wesley. We're really excited about that.